Most people would agree that the mainstream media is biased, and here in this video, we'll explore the systemic mechanisms that actually create this bias. One is the influence of advertisers. In the media, revenue tends to come from two main sources, subscriptions and advertisements. In the case of cable news, Pew Research finds that there's about a 50-50 split, with about half of their revenue coming from advertising. As of 2018, Statista reports the following ad revenues for major TV networks. NBC, $7 billion, CBS, $6 billion and Fox 5 billion. Spending such large amounts and comprising such a large percent of media revenues gives these advertisers a significant degree of influence over what these media institutions publish or air. Here's what I don't mean by this. I'm not saying that tactical flashlight commercials will bias reporters in favor of brightly lit rooms. I'm also not arguing that Viagra ads will slant your reporting in favor of raw car directions. Although I will say the media's fixation on Anthony Weiner and Monica Lewis Lewinsky does lead you to wonder. Come to think of it, I turned on Fox News the other day and their lower third was just a bunch of eggplant emojis. No, what I am saying is that since your advertisers essentially sign your paychecks, it wouldn't make sense for your network to lead sustained campaigns that undermine your advertisers' business models. Simply put, spending as much as they do gives them influence over the final media product. As explained by Ben Bagdikian in his book The New Media Monopoly, quote, Advertisers are increasingly interested in the context of their ads in the medium, the surrounding articles and newspapers and magazines, and the type of broadcast program in which they their commercials are inserted. An ad for a sable fur coat next to an article on world starvation is not the most effective association for making a sale. Large advertisers do not merely buy a certain number of commercials, deliver the tapes to the networks and local stations, and let the commercials fall where they may. Some television and radio ads are bought on that basis, but not usually those of major advertisers. Big advertisers in particular want to know the nature of the program into which their commercials will be inserted. No network produces a program without considering whether sponsors will like it. Prospective shows usually are discussed with major advertisers, who look at plans or tentative scenes and reject, approve, or suggest changes." End quote. And this input from advertisers is more than just the occasional gentle recommendation. They sometimes provide very clear, almost comically specific guidelines about what type of content is and is not acceptable to them. And assuming that media outlets want their advertising money, this forces them to morph their content into conformity with what their corporate advertisers want. Bagdikian continues, quote, The FCC held hearings in 1965 to determine how much influence advertisers had on non-commercial content of television and radio. Albert N. Halverstadt, general advertising manager of Procter & Gamble, testified that the company established directives for programs in which Procter & Gamble would advertise. He then gave the FCC the formal requirements for television programs, as established by the medium's largest advertisers in their memorandums of instruction to their advertising agency. In dealing with war, our writers should minimize the horror aspects. The writers should be guided by the fact that any scene that contributes negatively to public morale is not acceptable. Men in uniform should not be cast as heavy villains or portrayed as engaging in any criminal activity. There will be no material on any of our programs which could in any way further the concept of business as cold, ruthless, and lacking all sentiment or 
spiritual motivation. If a businessman is cast in the role of a villain, it must be made clear that he is not typical, but is as much despised by his fellow businessmen as he is by other members of society, end quote. I actually know someone in the film industry, and he tells me that due to the pressure of corporate advertisers, they've decided to remake many famous films and have the main character be much more business and government friendly. So Ace Ventura will now be a casino floor manager. Donnie Darko is a traveling fluorescent light bulb salesman. The Terminator is a hiring manager at Quiznos. Harold and Kumar are partners of a Korean investing firm. James Bond is of course a stockbroker. Spider-Man does pest management consulting. John Wick sells candles on Shopify. Napoleon Dynamite designs cluster bombs for Halliburton. And Max Payne is a CIA torture specialist. If it turns out that an article or piece of programming is not to their liking and the paper or station decides to air it anyway, advertisers can simply pull their funding from the offending outlets and send a clear message that content of this sort will lose these media companies' money. So this advertising money is both a bargaining chip and a bludgeon that's used to craft content in the media that corporate advertisers are happy with. Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman in their classic book Manufacturing Consent provide one example of many where advertisers advertisers flex their muscle in response to content they don't like. Quote, many firms will always refuse to patronize ideological enemies and those whom they perceive as damaging their interests. Public television station WNET lost its corporate funding from Gulf and Western in 1985 after the station showed the documentary Hungry for Profit, which contains material critical of multinational corporate activities in the third world. Even before the program was shown, in anticipation of negative corporate reaction, Station officials, quote, did all we could to get the program sanitized, end quote, according to one station source. The chief executive of Gulf and Western complained to the station that the program was virulently anti-business, if not anti-American, and that the station's carrying the program was not the behavior of a friend of the corporation. The London Economist says that most people believe that WNET would not make the same mistake again, end quote. By the way, these two books I just cited, Manufacturing Consent and the New Media Monopoly, are absolute must-reads on the subject of media propaganda. You can find a link to purchase these books in the description, and I strongly recommend that you read them because they are extremely eye-opening. You'll also find links to the other books I mentioned as well in this video. Full disclosure, as an Amazon associate, I earn from qualifying purchases. Chomsky and Herman provide another example where, in this case, a proposed documentary series at NBC, Critical of Corporations, never ended up airing because they couldn't find any sponsors for it. Quote, large corporate advertisers on television will rarely sponsor programs that engage in serious criticisms of corporate activities, such as the problem of environmental degradation, the workings of the military-industrial complex, or corporate support of and benefits from third world tyrannies. Eric Barnow recounts the history of a proposed documentary series on environmental problems by NBC at a time of great interest in these issues. Barnow notes that although at that time a great many large corporations were spending money on commercials and other publicity regarding environmental problems, the documentary series failed for want of sponsors. The problem was one of excessive objectivity in the series, which included suggestions of corporate or systemic failure, whereas the corporate message was one of reassurance. Television networks learn over time that such
such programs will not sell and would have to be carried at a financial sacrifice, and that in addition, they may offend powerful advertisers. With the rise in price of advertising spots, the foregone revenue increases, end quote. Advertisers will sometimes go so far as to threaten to pull their ads from media companies that didn't even publish the offending contents, but are merely linked to the publisher by a parent company. Bagdikian gives two examples of this, quote, In 1938, Esquire had started Ken, a magazine of liberal idealism that seemed to start with great promise. Advertisers disliked the liberal ideas in its articles, and not only refused to advertise in the new publication, but threatened to pull out their ads from Esquire as well. So the owners of Esquire killed Ken, even though it met its circulation plans. In 1976, the New York Times published a series of articles on medical malpractice. The news series angered the medical industry, including pharmaceutical firms. They could not retaliate effectively against the New York Times, which does not carry much medical advertising. But medicine-related advertisers were crucial to magazines published by the New York Times company, including a periodical called Modern Medicine. Pharmaceutical firms threatened to withdraw 260 pages of their ads from Modern Medicine, a loss of half a million dollars. And the Times company sold its medical magazines to hardcore Brace Jovanovich, end quote. Oh, a company that's merely associated with you published something we don't like? You're all going down in flames. This practice is the business world equivalent of when a movie villain says, look, if you double-cross me, your family members are dead. As we saw in my previous video exploring media propaganda during democratic debates, the corporate media has a very clear and quantifiable bias against Medicare for All, to take just one example of their bias. Why would it turn out this way, you might ask? It's not like CNN or ABC are in the health insurance business. So what do they have to lose from covering Medicare for All positively, or even just neutrally? What they have to lose is millions of dollars from the health insurance industry. Anthem, the insurance provider, spent over three $300 million on advertising and marketing in 2015. If CNN started slamming private insurance companies each night, do you think these companies would continue to patronize that network with their ad revenue? Why would they? They'd be shooting themselves in the foot. They'd basically be funding a campaign to make their companies look bad and undermine public support for the current system, under which they're flourishing. And the thing about a government program like Medicare for All is that there's no comparable industry on the other side with a huge advertising budget budget to balance this out, and threaten to pull their funding if they get covered negatively. While there are some organizations that do advertise in support of single-payer, their pockets aren't nearly as deep as those of the insurance industry. This means that one side of the debate has a much larger influence over the final media product that we read and listen to, and the bias that we end up seeing on this subject is exactly what you'd expect if one side of the argument was a much more profligate advertiser. All you have to do is follow the money, and it becomes very very clear why certain biases exist in the mainstream media. The health insurance industry is just one example of this, but really the same principle applies to any of their major advertisers. Take defense contractors as another example. Here we have an industry that isn't even selling a product that the people watching and reading at home can purchase, yet they still spend millions advertising in the media. I can only speak for myself here, but whenever I see a commercial for Lockheed Martin or Boeing showing off some of their latest fighter jets, for example, I'm never tempted to head down to the nearest aircraft hangar and spend $90 million to buy one of them. Nobody sees a commercial like this and thinks, you know what, I was so struck by this commercial that I'm going to call my congressman and let him know 
know that the next military contract should go to Raytheon. I'm sure these companies do derive some marginal public benefit from airing these commercials, but since they're not even selling anything to the audience, this seems to be a clear case of simply spending this money to curry favor with the media. Spending millions to advertise on your network buys them leverage over the content you produce because it's a revenue source that they can threaten to pull away from you. This makes your network less likely to critique this industry and less likely to oppose the wars that they profit from. As the saying goes, don't bite the hand that feeds you. And once again, there's no comparable major advertiser on the other side of this debate to balance things out. The peace movement simply doesn't have the financial resources that these billion dollar companies do. So one mechanism that creates media bias is the influence of corporate advertisers. And here's the thing about these media outlets, they themselves are driven by profits. It's not just that they're in bed with the corporations, they are the corporations. In a similar vein, the reporters working for these outlets aren't just biased in favor of the wealthy, they are the wealthy. Anderson Cooper, for example, has a yearly salary of $12 million from CNN. This guy's so rich that he pays his gardener to do his muckraking. As Jonathan Daniels once said, more people are bribed by their own money than anybody else's. If large, profitable corporations provide your news, it would only be reasonable to expect this news to be biased in favor of large, profitable corporations. Why would they provide consistent coverage that hurts the growth of their business? It'd be like taping a kick-me sign onto your own back. As Robert McChesney writes in Rich Media, Poor Democracy, quote, The problem with the corporate media system is not that the people who own and manage the dominant media firms are bad and immoral people. The owners and managers do what they do because it is the most rational conduct to pursue in the market context they face, end quote. Media companies are also influenced by the pressure that comes from shareholders and investors. Chomsky and Herman explain, quote, Banks and other institutional investors are also large owners of media stock. In the early 1980s, such institutions held 44% of the stock of publicly owned newspapers and 35% of the stock of publicly owned broadcasting companies. These holdings individually and collectively do not convey control, but these large investors can make themselves heard, and their actions can affect the welfare of the companies and their managers. If the managers fail to pursue actions that favor shareholder returns, institutional investors will be inclined to sell the stock, depressing its price, or to listen sympathetically to outsiders contemplating takeovers. These investors are a force helping press media companies towards strictly market profitability objectives, end quote. And it's not just their own bottom line that these companies have to worry about. Oftentimes, a news outlet is owned by larger parent companies that have stakes in other industries. The classic example of this is the parent company of NBC being involved in the design of military equipment. As described by Norman Solomon Affair, quote, NBC's owner, General Electric, designed, manufactured, or supplied parts or maintenance for nearly every major weapon system used by the U.S. during the Gulf War, including the Patriot and Tomahawk cruise missiles, the Stealth Bomber, the B-52 Bomber, the AWOX plane, and the Navstar spy satellite system. In other words, we wrote in unreliable sources, when correspondents and paid consultants on NBC television praised the performance of U.S. weapons, they were extolling equipment made by GE, the corporation that pays their salaries. News coverage of the Gulf War in U.S. media was sufficiently laudatory to the warmakers in Washington that a former Assistant Secretary of State, Hodding Carter, remarked, if I were the government, I'd be paying the press for the kind of coverage it is getting now, end quote. 
These media companies are further linked to other industries in the form of board directorships. Chomsky and Herman provide some numbers on this point, quote, active corporate executives and bankers together account for a little over half the total of the outside directors of 10 media giants. And the lawyers and corporate banker retirees push the corporate total to about two-thirds of the outside director aggregate. These 95 outside directors had directorships in an additional 36 banks and 255 other companies, end quote. It's easy to see how this could generate bias in the media. If a media company director is also on the board of large banking institutions, for example, it only makes logical sense that his input will support the interests of those banking institutions, or at the very least, not overtly oppose them. He wouldn't support commentary that's critical of the interests he represents, because he'd be undermining the very companies that it's his job to help out. And again, it should go without saying that there aren't too many corporate media board directors who oppose the interests of these industries. The Medicare for all advocates, or the member of the peace movements, or the union representative, simply doesn't have a seat at the table of these corporate media boardrooms. Or if he does have a seat at the table, it's probably one of those Dr. Evil seats where they push a button and a trap door drops him in the incinerator. Sometimes political bias in the media is their way of rewarding politicians for supporting their interests. So the way this might work in the broadest sense is that these companies and their wealthy reporters might support a centrist candidate over a progressive one because the progressive would implement higher taxes on corporations and the rich in this country. So in helping out the centrist, they're also helping themselves. No backroom deals or shady agreements are needed to make this happen. The companies and reporters are simply doing what they think is best for for their pocketbooks. Other times, however, political bias is an outright quid pro quo, where the media lends their collective support to politicians after they pass legislation that helps their industry. An especially clear example of this is detailed in the new media monopoly, quote, the publishers obtained their newspaper preservation act and President Nixon was given his political reward, the support of the large media organizations. In 1972, Richard Nixon received the highest percentage of newspaper endorsements of any candidate in modern times. In the previous three presidential elections, a third of all Hearst papers had endorsed the Democratic candidates, as had a third of the Cox papers and half of the Scripps-Howard papers. In 1972, after passage of the Newspaper Preservation Act, every Hearst paper, every Cox paper, and every Scripps-Howard paper endorsed Nixon. Scripps-Howard ordered a standard pro-Nixon editorial into all its dailies. Cox ordered all its editors to endorse Nixon, causing one editor to resign in protest, end quote. God, imagine being ordered to endorse Nixon in an op-ed. If I were in that position, I'd probably just be super sarcastic about the whole thing. I support Richard Nixon for president because his shameful bungling of the war in Vietnam makes him seem like a relatable human being who experiences the most humiliating and devastating failures. Another source of bias is the media's over-reliance on official sources like government press releases and business PR statements. Chomsky and Herman explain this process very well, quote, The mass media are drawn into a symbiotic relationship with powerful sources of information by economic necessity and reciprocity of interest. The media need a steady, reliable flow of the raw material of news. They have daily news demands and imperative news schedules that they must meet. They cannot afford to have reporters and cameras at all places 
places where important stories may break. Economics dictates that they concentrate their resources where significant news often occurs, where important rumors and leaks abound, and where regular press conferences are held. The White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department in Washington, D.C. are central nodes of such news activity. Business corporations and trade groups are also regular and credible purveyors of stories deemed newsworthy. Government and corporate sources also have the great merit of being recognizable and credible by their status and prestige. Taking information from sources that may be presumed credible reduces investigative expense, whereas material from sources that are not prima facie credible or that will elicit criticism and threats requires careful checking and costly research. To consolidate their preeminent position as sources, government and business news promoters go to great pains to make things easy for news organizations. They provide the media organizations with facilities in which to gather. They give journalists advanced copies of speeches and forthcoming reports. They schedule press conferences at hours well geared to news deadlines. They write press releases in usable language. And they carefully organize their press conferences in photo opportunity sessions. In effect, the large bureaucracies of the powerful subsidize the mass media and gain special access by their contribution to reducing the media's costs of acquiring the raw materials of and producing news. The large entities that provide the subsidy become routine news sources and have privileged access to the gates, end quote. I'm not sure how closely you follow the news, but this over-reliance on untrustworthy government sources has been getting pretty bad lately. At the last Pentagon press conference, the guy at the podium just jingled his keys for 10 minutes. So one key reason that we see anti-establishment voices underrepresented in the media is that it's simply more profitable to overrepresent the pro-establishment voices. And notice that they don't even have to be doing this on purpose for the bias to emerge. There doesn't need to be a conscious campaign where reporters deliberately ignore anti-establishment voices. The media may simply be getting much of their info from official government sources who make it easy for them, and the info these sources provide would have a pro-government bias, given that it's coming from the government. Bagdikian notes that you're not very likely to hear a whole lot of anti-government talking points at a Pentagon press briefing. Quote, leaders, whether in public or private life and whatever their personal ethical standards, like most human beings, seldom wish to publicize information that discloses their mistakes or issues they wish to keep in the background or with which they disagree. Officials do not always say the whole truth. When war is proposed but not yet begun, the news media fail to to clarify the known facts and limit their main information source to the government, which is not, of course, going to display information and argue publicly against what it wishes to do." End quote. In a similar vein, if they get a lot of their business news from corporate press conferences, it would make sense to see a bias in favor of the corporations that are presenting this information to them. What are they going to do, hold a press conference where they explain just how terrible their company is? Not very likely. You should sell your stock in our company, because we fucking suck. Alex Carey explains in his book Taking the Risk Out of Democracy that business organizations make it even easier for the media by outright preparing a bunch of news material for them, including large numbers of editorials ready for publication. It should go without saying that such material would support the political and business interests of the corporations that provide it. Quote, Founded in 1972, the Business Roundtable comprises the chief executive officers of 194 of America's largest corporations. The Roundtable 
and its allies organized a national distribution of cartoons, pamphlets, ads, and newsletters in opposition to the Consumer Protection Agency. The Roundtable hired a public relations firm to distribute canned editorials and cartoons to 1,000 daily newspapers and 2,800 weeklies. Portions of the distributed materials were published without indication of source approximately 2,000 times, end quote. And since the media is so dependent on these government and business sources, they might also slant their reporting in such a way that it doesn't defend them. Because if they're too critical of their sources, there's always the possibility that they'll deny them future access for interviews, inside scoops, and so forth. It's even worse if you actively run in these circles, with politicians and corporate executives not just being mere sources of information, but being a part of your social network. If you're too sharply critical of a certain politician or corporate executive, that might make things awkward at the next cocktail party you see them at, especially if you bump into them at the orgy upstairs. Some people characterize media critiques of the sort as delusional conspiracy theories, oftentimes telling us how absurd it would be for the people that work in media to meet up in smoke-filled back rooms <laughs> to strategize about how best to propagandize their audience. On my previous video examining media propaganda, one of the comments from Mario Mario said, quote, This it's all a conspiracy against progressives is Alex Jones-level asinine. This is probably the worst conspiratorial video you've done. It's Trump-level delusion and conspiracies, end quote. Yeah, nice try, Jake Tapper. I'm on to you, buddy. No, look, I do think the media is biased, but you're really gonna lump me in the same basket as Alex Jones here. It's not like I think it's an evil Illuminati conspiracy where Satan himself is pulling the strings at these companies. All right, just sign here and you're officially part of the team. This says it's a contract to sign away my soul. What's that all about? Are those horns on your head? Where did those come from? It's a birth defect. What about that pitchfork in the corner? Uh, I like farming. What about that door that says entrance to hell on it? Oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about it. Dude, I can hear people screaming on the other side of it. You know what? You're fired. Get the fuck out of my office. Damien here will escort you out of the building. Your pain is only just beginning. Not now, Damien. As I explained in my response to this comment, these are corporate institutions, oftentimes owned by parent companies that have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. The companies themselves are very wealthy corporations made up of very rich reporters. You'd have to be incredibly naive to look at the state of affairs and not expect there to be bias. It's also a huge drawman to reduce this multifaceted institutional critique of the media to sinister reporters meet up to secretly plot against progressives. Every author I've read on the subject goes to great pains to explain how their media critiques do not resemble this oversimplified caricature of an evil conspiracy. For example, here's how Ben Bagdikian explains it, quote, The news media are not monolithic. They are not frozen in a permanent set of standards, but they suffer from built-in biases that protect corporate power. The narrow choices the dominant media firms offer the country are not the result of a conspiracy. Dominant media members do not sit around a table parceling out market shares, prices, and products, as is done literally by OPEC. The five dominant media firms don't need to. They share too many of the same methods and goals, end quote. And here's how Chomsky and Herman respond to the allegation that they're presenting a conspiracy theory, quote, institutional critiques such as we present in this book are commonly dismissed by establishment commentators as conspiracy theories, but this is merely an evasion. We do not use any kind of conspiracy hypothesis to explain mass media performance. 
In fact, our treatment is much closer to a free market analysis, with the results largely an outcome of the workings of market forces. Most biased choices in the media arise from the pre-selection of right-thinking people, internalized preconceptions, and the adaptation of personnel to the constraints of ownership, organization, markets, and political power. Censorship is largely self-censorship by reporters and commentators who adjust to the realities of source and media organizational requirements, and by people at higher levels within media organizations who are chosen to implement, and have usually internalized, the constraints imposed by proprietary and other market and governmental centers of power. In most cases, media leaders do similar things because they see the world through the same lenses, are subject to similar constraints and incentives, and thus feature stories or maintain silence together in tacit collective action and leader-follower behavior." End quote. As I said in my final response to this comment, at least make an effort to understand the position you're critiquing, instead of lazily dismissing it as a giant conspiracy. I'm sorry, dude, but your analysis is so incredibly flawed that it's probably going to get you a job at ABC. I should point out, however, that even though I reject this evil conspiracy viewpoint, I do think that many of these authors understate the degree to which actual collaboration occurs between the different media companies, and also the degree to which flat-out, top-down control and censorship takes place. Linkages do exist between different media companies. There's overlap between their board directors, for example, as we learn in Rich Media Poor Democracy, quote, when one looks at the membership of the U.S. media giant's board of directors, the people who legally represent the shareholders and therefore run the companies, the notion that this is a collaborative industry is even more justified. The 11 media giants have 36 direct links, meaning people who serve on different media firm boards of directors and also serve on the same board for another Fortune 1000 corporation. In combination, this suggests that the corporate media are very closely linked to each other and to the highest echelons of the corporate community, end quote. They also work together to lobby the government in support of their industry, as Bagdikian explains, quote, All five dominant media conglomerates join forces in one of Washington's most powerful lobbies, the National Association of Broadcasters, to achieve the laws and regulations that increase their collective power over consumers, end quote. And in the closest thing to the proverbial smoke-filled back room, there actually is a restricted annual meeting between the heads of these companies. McChesney explains, presumably after escaping his padded cell, <laughs> and making a hat out of tinfoil. Quote, the media giant CEOs and now computer industry CEOs like Bill Gates and Andy Grove meet annually at a by-invitation-only retreat in Idaho to discuss the future of their industry. Regardless of what actually happens in Idaho, these interactions bear many of the earmarks of a cartel, or at least a gentleman's club, end quote. And despite all the talk of glorious competition between them, these media companies often team up and go into business together. Bagdikian explains as follows, quote, The media giants each employ equity joint ventures with their competitors to an extraordinary extent. These are media projects where two or more media giants share the ownership between them. They are ideal because they spread the risk of a venture and eliminate the threat of competition by teaming up with potential adversaries. The dominant five media conglomerates have a total of 100 141 joint ventures, which makes them business partners with each other. To cite only one example, News Corporation shares a financial interest with its competitors in 63 cable systems, magazines, recording companies, and satellite channels in the United States and abroad, end quote. So there actually is a lot more collaboration between these different media companies than you might initially expect there to be. 
You can also find example after example where flat-out censorship takes place in the media. Reporters might be told by higher-ups that they need to change their coverage and tone, with the end result sometimes being resignations or firings. For example, Cenk Uger, who used to work at MSNBC, has a story just like this. I got pulled in, and they told me, hey, listen, uh, we were just, or it was actually one specific person, the head of MSNBC, he said, I was just in Washington, and people in Washington tell me that they're concerned about your tone. I was like, whoa, what? You know, despite all the things that I've said about the mainstream media, I still viewed that as kind of like theoretical. Like a real person, are they really going to say that? I was like, he said, I'd love to be an outsider. Outsiders are cool. But we're not. We're insiders. We are the establishment. And I just kind of sat back. I was like, wow, this is it. This is the speech. So he, he said, look, you got to tone it down. And then he had me talk to one of their top contributors who explained, hey, listen, just take it easy. You know, you're a little tough on the guests and, you know, tone issues and let's have more Republicans on, which was an interesting thing. Hey, you know what, Jank? It beats getting pulled into Roger Ailes office. All right. Take a seat, Mr. Uger. So I was just in Washington and received word that a lot of people think you're not blowing me enough. God damn it, Mr. Ailes. For the hundredth time, I'm not going to blow you. Damn it. Foiled again. Jank also tells us how his experience was not unique. Another one of their reporters also felt the same kind of pressure. I had another on-air talent at MSNBC tell me off the record that if they ever criticized Hillary Clinton, they would immediately get a call from management. Bagdikian details another example where newspaper editors were fired for the unacceptable crime of refusing to push propaganda. Quote, the Cox chain, once the ninth largest in circulation, in one election ordered all its papers to endorse the same national candidates. Scripps Howard, once the seventh largest chain, has done the same and annually adopted a uniform stand on major issues. The Panax chain fired editors who refused to put the publisher's propagandistic views on page one as news, end quote. Censorship can also take the form of refusing to allow criticism of the parent company, as described by McChesney, quote, Arthur Kent, the NBC correspondent who gained fame for his coverage of the 1990-91 Gulf War, left the network and has published a damning expose of GE's ongoing efforts to cheapen, degrade, and censor the news. The people who constitute the conscience of the broadcast news discipline, working journalists, now have less real influence on the daily news agenda than ever before, Kent wrote, and they face harsh treatment from management if they speak out. In particular, Kent's chronicles GE's opposition to NBC News examining any of GE's business operations. In 1998, Disney-owned ABC News rejected a report by its leading investigative correspondent exposing labor and safety practices at Disney World in Florida. Although ABC News claimed the cancellation was due to factors other than the identity of the subject, the stench of conflict of interest could not not help but fill the air, end quote. So tossing around the smear term conspiracy theory doesn't change the fact that very clear instances of censorship do exist in the media. Much more common, however, is the application of softer, more subtle pressure to keep journalists within acceptable boundaries. Jessica Yellen, former White House correspondent for MSNBC and ABC News, explains that while she wasn't flat out ordered what to say by corporate executives, through a consistent pattern of feedback she received, it became clear what direction they wanted her to move in. I think the press corps 
I dropped the ball at the beginning. When the, when the lead-up to war began, uh, the press corps was under enormous pressure from corporate executives, frankly, to make sure that this was a war that was presented in a way that was consistent with the patriotic fever in the nation and the president's high approval ratings. And my own experience at the White House was that the higher the president's approval ratings, the more pressure I had from news executives, and I was not at this network at the time, but the more pressure I had from news executives to put on positive stories uh, about the president. I think over time... You, you had pressure from news executives to put on positive stories about the president? Not in, not in that exact... They wouldn't say it in that way, but they would edit my pieces, they would push me in different directions, they would turn down stories that were more critical and try to put on pieces that were more positive. Yes, that was my experience. We hear something similar from a former Fox News employee in the documentary Outfoxed. I'm told he first noticed something was wrong when he suddenly realized that he works for Fox News. He explains that over time, you simply learn to internalize the desired values of your higher-ups. You pitch a story in any given editorial meeting that didn't meet the criteria that they had explained to you, and you got a thumbs down. When you have this executive vice president and those around him who are consistently saying, no, we're not going to do that story, no, this story's bad, this story's good, and it becomes very clear to all the bureau chiefs, to everybody involved who have been there over a period of years, there are certain kinds of stories it's not even worth bringing up. There are other kinds of stories that you know management's going to love. I should also note that this is exactly the process McChesney describes in Rich Media, Poor Democracy. Quote, Over time, successful journalists simply internalize the idea that it is goofy and unprofessional to want to pursue these controversial stories that cause mostly headaches. In addition, journalists will find it ever more difficult to get the go-ahead for these types of stories from their editors and bosses. End quote. Chomsky and Herman make virtually the same point. Quote, The media serve and propagandize on behalf of the powerful societal interests that control and finance them. This is normally not accomplished by crude intervention, but by the selection of right-thinking personnel and by the editors and working journalists' internalization of priorities and definitions of newsworthiness that conform to the institution's policy." End quote. They hit on something important here. There's a much easier process than having to slowly pressure your employees over time into developing the appropriate desired viewpoints. You can simply screen out the people that will cause problems and ensure that your employees have the right biases during your hiring process. Tell me about a time that you and a coworker disagreed about how best to shamelessly peddle propaganda. Ooh, it says here on your resume that you have integrity. That's gonna be a problem. So as we've seen, there are many different factors that create a bias within the mainstream media. The final thing to consider is that these factors don't just operate individually, but actually stack on top of one another, which compounds the pressure to create a finished media product that's skewed in the appropriate directions. Let's consider how this would work on the question of US wars overseas. First, we have the variables that would prevent reporters and commentators from even opposing such wars in the first place. They get the bulk of their information about war from the very government and military that's waging it. So most of the information and arguments that they learn about the subject would be skewed in favor of the wars. Another way to put this is to say that the reporters who sell propaganda are themselves the victim of propaganda. Even if they can break through this thicket of government-provided pro-war propaganda and they begin questioning the war, this puts them in the awkward position of potentially frustrating and alienating some of the key sources they depend upon for interviews, off-the-record information, and so forth. And if their commentary becomes particularly strident, they could even get told by their boss that people in DC want them to tone down their coverage. At that 
that same meeting with your boss, he might also remind you that the parent company that owns your news network is heavily involved in the defense industry, meaning that war is good for business. He might also mention a factor I haven't brought up yet, and that's the basic fact that war is simply better for ratings than peace. He could also inform you that defense contractors spend millions of dollars advertising on your network, and if the anti-war coverage continues, they've said they're going to pull their advertising dollars. That's not to say that this is exactly the process by which these different factors create a bias in the media, but the key thing to understand is that several different variables slant their coverage in one particular direction. You can also think of these variables as corrective mechanisms that steer their coverage and commentary back within acceptable boundaries if they begin to stray too far. The media themselves are large corporations made up of wealthy reporters, and they're also linked to other industries via their company board of directors. Sometimes biased coverage is basically a reward for political favors that help out their industry. In addition, the working reporters over time come to internalize the values that keep their managers and editors happy. The hiring staff of these institutions could also pre-select employees that have the desired values to begin with. While I don't believe that the media's bias comes from backroom meetings full of diabolical laughter, the different media giants do collaborate to a large extent, in the form of board directorships, joint business ventures, and lobbying organizations that serve their mutual interests. You can also find many documented examples of outright censorship and top-down control within these media institutions. Other additional factors probably contribute to the mainstream media's bias, but the ones I've outlined here, in my view, are the predominant ones. 